Foundry Church, have you ever gone water skiing? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I started skiing at a very young age. As a young man, a young adult, um, I loved water sports. I loved wakeboarding. I especially loved high-speed slalom skiing. I just loved, we, me and my friend Brett Curtis, who runs YWAM Ship, oh man, we had a hoot together. I broke ribs. I, I mean, we just, we got after it. And we skied, skied in some crazy waterways uh, across the world. I remember one time I bounced off the Caribbean Mercy, uh, the Mercy Ship, uh, broke three ribs, hitting that because I caught on an edge and lost my balance. But when you water ski, if you've ever done it, you know when you're little, you come up and the first instinct is to pull the rope to your chest and then you fall backwards, right? But the best thing in skiing is to hold the rope with a bend in your elbows, a little bend in your knees like this. And you can get your balance, and then you learn to kind of push on the skis, and, and you can turn, you can go outside the wake, and you're like, oh, 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 did you see it? And then you fall, and it's awesome. And eventually, you're like, I want to slalom ski, because there's, when I was little, watching people like dig in and really just cut the wake, oh, it was so fun. So I loved that, and you learn like you, you learn to slalom by kicking a ski off while you're going and getting your balance, and you fall a lot. Eventually, you figure it out. Eventually, you learn to come out of the water only on one ski, dragging a leg to give yourself a little bit of a, a balance foot there, and then you come up and stick that toe in and get your carve on. It's great, right? It's great, but it's all about balance. I mean, some of my greatest wipeouts were because I, will, I would have come out of a turn that I barely survived. I'm like, oh, boom, and I would wipe out because I, I would forget and, and kind of like let up on, on keeping my balance, keeping myself in a position I was in control of. Balance, it matters. And it matters when we talk about it in relationship to children. How do we balance the, the way we raise, train up, and love children? I want to talk to you about extremes. Because there's extremes, historically, uh, even to this very present day, but historically, uh, and, then, and then I would say after Christ, after the church era, in this book, How Christianity Changed the World by Alvin Schmidt, such a good book, such a good book. And if you wonder just how deep and broad the impact of Jesus Christ is, read this book. It'll change your perspective on things because one of the things he does is he talks to us about the value of human life after Jesus was taught, after the gospel came to Rome. When the early Christians first came to Rome to evangelize it, they were horrified at what went on. Here's just a, a list of things that went on as commonly as drinking water. Infants left around the obelisks or just thrown into the Tiber River to die. So to die of exposure or drowning. Everyday common occurrence in Rome. And Christians saw this and were like, what in the world? How can that be true? Jesus welcomed the little children. How, how can this be happening? So infanticide was rampant historically. Rome is a picture of it, but it's not the only picture. So infanticide was common, but it was much more common, not just in infants, but infant girls were often put to death. We see this today, even in modern day China, that infant girls are not as valuable in the one child society that is, you know, the Chinese nation. So when we see this, we know that infanticide was a thing historically, but um, girls, little girls suffered exponentially more than little boys because, well, in the Greek society, only uh, less than 1% of families 
would um, raise more than one little girl. Why? They didn't value them. They didn't think them worth anything. They would literally throw newborns into the Tiber River or just leave them exposed in an open sunlit square in Rome. It was horrible, horrible. So we see infanticide, and then it really focused in on little girls. We see... um, the, just one of the most horrible aspects was the abuse of children and the way that we, in our world, we protect our children for predatory behavior. I'm trying to say it delicately, but predators weren't predators in the ancient world against children. It was common everyday practice in Greco and Roman worlds for children to be taken under the wing of what we would now know as a pedophile or a predator. And they were abused and misused and harmed and and treated as um, an implement of satisfaction rather than someone made in the image of God for the purposes of God. This was a common part of the ancient world. And when the Christians got there and they saw these babies and they saw the the pedestry and the different perversions going on, they began to not just speak out, they began to adopt these children. They would take them into their homes, raise them and care for them. And, And the value of human life floated up with the Christian view that that children were valuable to God. They were made in the image of God and every life was valuable. And Jesus spoke of that. And he, he called his people by example to value the lives of children. The polar extremes are found in the absolute lack of value given to children, infants, and girls in the ancient world versus the absolute service and love given to children, first by Jesus, then by the church, in adoption, in protection, and in valuing them to train them up. We see these two extremes, but the extremes, the the other pole happens, it becomes kind of bipolar when you have this lack of value, and then the new value that came in was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus and Christianity that changed this ethic. It wasn't a cultural awakening. It was a spiritual awakening to a truth that God wanted us to see and God gave us the example of in his son, Jesus Christ. We're gonna dive in now to Colossians chapter three, one to 25. I'm still working on memorizing it. You'll notice this. There'll be times where I'm quoting some of it and I have to look back down because um, for me, I, I can... I can usually memorize scripture. Uh, that's something I can do. My, my professor, uh, Dr. Tim Brown, taught me to do it in bites, and, and it really worked for me. Um, I've tried memorizing this in a different way, just for a different struggle and a different kind of tension on that. So I encourage you, keep working, keep hiding this scripture in your heart, because the more we hide the scriptures in our heart, the more they speak out the way we live. So join me as we read and quote from Colossians, the book of Colossians, written by Paul, chapter 3, 1 to 25. It says this, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden in Christ with God. So that when he returns, when he appears, you will 
appear with him in his glory. So put to death, therefore, everything that has or belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, lust, impurity, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you formerly lived, but now, but now you must rid yourself also of these things, rage, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language on your lips. And don't lie to one another. Since you have taken your old self off with its practices and you are putting on the new self, which is is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of your creator. Here then, in this faith, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no circumcised or uncircumcised, Scythian, barbarian, slave or free. Here, Christ is all. And he is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any of you has a, if any of you has a grievance with someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues, Put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since you were called to be people. Since you were called as members of one body to be at peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell with you richly as you teach, as you admonish one another with psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, sing to God with gratitude in your heart and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father in him. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, for this is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and don't speak harshly to them. Children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter and exasperate your children or they will become discouraged. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry favor, but do it with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work with all your heart as though you're working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive from the Lord a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be punished for their wrongdoing, and there will be no favoritism. So we look at this scripture in Colossians chapter 3, and we can realize that that it points out some things very clearly. But there's some partner scriptures that come alongside it and speak really well out of the book of Proverbs in chapter uh, 3, verse 12. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father would the son he delights in. God disciplines those he loves as a dad who delights in his son also disciplines his son. Proverbs 13, 24, whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. 
Now, you may be wondering, like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute here. How did we turn this this corner, like you talked about how in the ancient world, people were indifferent or even too harsh. I mean, one of the things I didn't touch on is the way children were enslaved in the ancient world and forced to labor unto the point of death because of, well, to be useful. So you may be looking at it going, wait a minute, you said people were too harsh, and now you're saying, discipline them, and maybe it doesn't make sense right now, but when we spare the rod, and and you need to understand this, there is an appropriateness in discipline for children. It needs to happen. Every child truly is different. For me, when I was little, a spanking worked. It did work, but I know this with our three children. It didn't work with uh, some of our kids. One of our children had a toy shelf, and when they got in trouble, you'd put a toy on it, and they would stare at the toy and just be like, oh, I'm in sand. You know, they wouldn't say that. But they'd be like, oh, I want my toy back, and they would change their behavior because their punishment was always before them. One of our children's spanking did work, and they didn't like it, and they responded well to it. So here's what I'm saying. The heart of correction and discipline is to form the character of a child, not to take out your aggressions, not to be angry and do it in rage. We spare the rod. We hate our children. When we don't punish our children, it says we hate them because in doing so, we give them no boundaries in life. We give them no boundaries. In, in applying discipline, it can be done in love. And it can be done correctly. So here's what I want to do. Go back to the balance idea with me. We need to seek the God of perfect balance in this. God is perfectly balanced. He's not demanding. He's not unrealistic, harsh, God calls us to be parents who are like him. He's called our heavenly father. And so we look at this and know that critical parenting leaves a child unwhole. Demanding, critical, harsh, unkind parenting leaves a child unwhole. It breaks them. And when we do this and we, and we disregard their needs... Because we're in a mood and we take it out at them. One of the things we do is you need to have this image in your head. You are removing part of the wholeness of them. You're breaking something in them. And that is not what God instructs or calls us to. But he also didn't call us to be overindulgent. To spoil our children. To neglect discipline. To ignore wrongdoing. When that happens, you find a child who is lost and perpetually unsatisfied and unhappy no matter how good things are. And that is problematic. So the God of perfect balance is somewhere between that harsh, unrelenting, cruel parent and that maybe overly empathetic and unwilling to kind of to, to do the hard thing, parent, and spoiling their child. God is somewhere perfectly balanced. He gives us a way forward in that. And I want to talk to you about that using this text out of Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves, put these things on, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and bear with one another. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. I think in this scripture, we can dive in and we can look at these things we're supposed to clothe ourselves with and respond in doing uh, quite easily and find ourselves a very applicable way to live with the Word of God as part of our um, part of our, our way we engage with our children, and not if you don't have children, with other children, uh, leaving them in school, coaching, uh, teaching in church, things like that. Here's one of the ways. One of the first things we're told to put on is compassion. And what I would like to do is I'm going to put a little tagline with each of these. Compassion. Clothe yourself with compassion. Walk a mile in those shoes. What shoes am I telling you to walk a mile in? I want you to um, remember being a middle schooler. Remember being in those oversized shoes when you looked at your feet and thought, why did they get so big all of a sudden? And what is that smell? Like you just, everything was changing and you were growing. And maybe you felt moody, happy, angry, in love, awkward, fully charged and alive and then just, oh, I can't do it. And you just felt all these different things. Maybe continually frustrated. These amazing people, these middle schoolers are in the middle of life's biggest change. They remember what was. They remember the glory of their childhood when toys and um, a kiss on something that hurt made everything better. They remember what was, but they're feeling something different, and they don't know what this unknown is, this adulthood, but they're also looking at maybe, you know, some, you know, the boys are looking at girls going, why do I love her so much? And you feel these different things. Do you remember walking a mile in these shoes? Their desires have shifted. Their emotions are like nuclearly supercharged with hormones. They feel different. They're not at home in their own skin. And we could be compassionate on the fact that they don't know what to do with everything that's going on in them. They may not know how to express it, but maybe we who've gone through it could be compassionate, slow to anger, kind, right? We could be compassionate. Compassion means taking into account what what might be making them so quick-tempered and emotionally, and emotional. Just slowing down and being compassionate and remembering for some reason, for some reason in this process, we are volatile. And maybe we, as adults, could not mirror that volatility, but we could reflect compassion, the compassion of Christ, and just walk a mile in their shoes. Listen to them and don't try to help them logic it out. Just be with them and give them time. I will always appreciate the people who served as adult volunteers to middle school when I was a youth pastor because they gave of their time, treasure, and talent to a group of people that were, that were not always gracious in receiving their best but they did it because they knew the transition was hard. They were compassionate in the way they lived. Put on compassion, wear it. The next thing is kindness. I encourage you to listen to them. Ernest Hemingway, I have a quote I wrote on, my, uh, on a thing in my office, and it says this, um, and I use it in my office as, an, as a reminder for me uh, because it's a weakness, but Ernest Hemingway said this once, when people talk, listen completely. One of the kindest things you can do is listen. So I want to encourage you today when it comes to children. Listen to them. It's a simple kindness. 
Listen to them. They may talk about things you don't understand. They may value things you don't think are important. They may tell you about a purple dinosaur who loves them or some show that means a lot to them that you don't know about. Listen to them and listen completely. Ask questions. Engage with them. The kindness of listening and giving the fullness of your ear and attention to them and the fullness of your attention is a simple kindness that speaks value to them in their stories, in their drama, their jokes, their dreams and ideas. When they get listened to without interruption, they will take and take and take. Why? Because I think quite often the kindness of listening to children is overlooked. They want to be seen and not heard. That is not biblical. Listen to them. Listen to their stories. Honestly, I'm not good at this. I struggle with this. I am working on it because kindness can be most easily expressed in the undivided attention of listening to what's going on in the life of a child. You'll be, you'll be amazed at what you hear and the wisdom and the kindness that comes out of them. If you just slow down and listen, kindness can be expressed and maybe just listening. That's one way you could go about kindness. The next thing we're told to, told to clothe ourselves with is humility. And when it comes to humility, I want to kind of go kind of the polar opposite of that horrible um, like throwing away of children in the ancient world and, and put it this way, humility, welcome them. I have a friend uh, who loves my son, Ethan. That he, he's, my friend is very kind to all our children. He's very kind to them. Uh, he learned their names right away when we first met them, and he's just kind of, but he, for some reason, he loves Ethan. He really has an attachment, and um, he and E have a special bond, and here's the thing. He welcomes him whenever he sees him. He welcomes him like a close friend or even like a nephew. He treats him like family, and when he sees him, his response is almost universal. He throws his hands up, and he says, it's Big E, or he's like, Ethan, and he goes over, high fives, knuckles, something like that. No matter who is in the room, he greets him like he matters. He greets him like he matters. And the weird thing is my son loves him in return. They have a close friendship, and it's weird because the guy's much older, but Ethan feels a peer, a kinship with him. Why? Because he welcomes him. He's excited to see him. He welcomes him in and, and, and gives an attachment. It makes me, my friend, makes me think of Jesus in this. When Jesus welcomed the little children, and everybody's like, what is he doing? Why would he welcome little children? Because he values them. Jesus values them. One small way that you can have humility is to not overlook kids. We as adults, one of the problems with being grown up is we look over the top of everything and we forget what's going on right down here and quite often what's going on. Our little eyes looking up wondering, do you notice me? Am I here to you too? We're always there to them. They're always coming to us, but are you here for them? Can you look down? Can you welcome them? Prioritize them. Make them a big part of your moment. Can you welcome them? Let, you, let them know that you are, this is so big, and, and my friend really taught me this. Let them know that you are never too big to be excited when you see them. It is a huge thing. 
to me. And it's, it's, um, it's a trait I value and I honor and I love. Um, I appreciate my friend. I appreciate it in my wife. I love that. I love that. Little kids matter. They should matter. And one way we can put on humility is to welcome them, to greet them, and to treat them as peers in a room. Not always, but they should be welcomed eagerly. And sometimes you're like, well, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because it's pride. Humility says welcome them as Jesus did. The next thing we can put on is gentleness. Hungry, humble, and smart is how I'm going to put this out there. Gentleness. Hungry, humble, and smart. Learn from their perspective. Sometimes we're too good to give kids our ear because we're like, look, you know, I, I don't know if that applies. Here's the thing. Quite often, they will drop real wisdom into our lives. I love these three things, hungry, humble, smart, in a teacher, in a leader, or in a parent, but I most often see it in the lives of children. When we planted this church, we involved our kids in it. They prayed, and one of the reasons it continued is because we prayed together and we asked God, God, if there's supposed to be a church called the Foundry, let there be 50 people. And they prayed earnestly with it. And when 51 people came that night, they rejoiced like it was a miracle. I think Josh said, this is a miracle. And I, I love that. I love that because they were hungry, humble, and smart. They offered ideas, dreams, and insights to Erica and I and the team on what was working and what wasn't. But they did something else. And I will never forget this as long as I live. When we had a leadership team that was kind of forming the church, we'd do worship in the morning, and then we would stay um, the leadership team for lunch, and then we'd have meetings all afternoon. And the kids loved it. And they would come in. Oh, man, uh, they would smell like they had been playing. They got stung by bees and fell out of trees, but they were out playing, and they would come back in the building, and when we'd be wrapping up the meeting, they'd be like, no, oh, we have to leave. They didn't want to leave because they got something about what the church is. It's a connection to Christ and his community, and the longer they could be in connection, all the better. And I learned from that, and it taught something in me. It was, it was the ability to be hungry, humble, and smart, to look at them and say, what are you doing that I should learn from? Because Jesus said, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to become like one of these little children. You've got to get out of your adult mind and be faithful and trust like a child trusts their father or their mother. I love that aspect. They were humble, they were hungry, and they were smart. The little kids of the foundry when we were brand new, hungry, humble, and smart, and the church was blessed by the joyful and gentle way they reminded us of what mattered. And make no mistake, the way they reminded us was always joyful but it was also gentle. It wasn't like, hey, mom and dad, do you know you're not good at relationship? No. They would just love people. They loved people. And they were in close relationship with them. Hungry, humble, smart. It's that joyful, gentle way of learning, maybe from people who don't know as much as you, but it doesn't mean they don't have something to teach. Patience. I want to invite you to do something with this one. Um, it's on the polar opposite end of the gentleness. Teach them something, but be patient with it. In World War II, at the Battle of Midway, the Japanese Navy lost the war, but not because they lost a couple carriers and a battle. The battle, it was significant, but they lost the war for one reason. 
they lost the institutional memory of the Japanese force that had been so overtaking the Western, Eastern and Western Pacific. The institutional memory of a group of people who functioned together in such a way that they didn't have to ask questions. There was, a, there was a natural nuance to the way they worked together and there was a precision found only in time spent and expertise developed. They lost institutional memory among their fighter pilots, their commanders, and their shipping, uh, their admiralty. They lost institutional memory. And this element is hard to quantify because the reality of it is it's something that's deeply ingrained in us. There are things we were taught to do when we were little boys and little girls that when we learned to do them, we were terrible at it. We didn't know what we were doing and we would try and we would fail. But do you remember that grandpa or that grandma, that mom, dad, aunt, uncle, somebody who took you alongside them and taught you how to do it and then you did it about 3% as well as they could do it. And it was terrible. But they didn't judge you. They taught you. And then they gave you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to do what? To get institutional memory on that skill, that talent. Many of us are who we are because someone taught us a good thing. Someone taught us a good thing. So teach children. Make no mistake that the burden rests on us to learn from them, but also to instruct them, to give them opportunity to fail and fail and fail, not because they're failures, but really institutional memory and knowledge and proficiency in something comes from opportunity and freedom to fail. Grandpas and grandmas, I mean, I can't tell you how many bad pies have been baked with the grandmother's recipe and the granddaughter's handiwork. But guess what? One day that grandmother isn't there anymore and her pie still is. Why? Because she was taught a proficiency. She gave the opportunity. Teach them something. Be patient with them. They don't have to figure it out on the first swing, but they deserve a chance to be up there trying and trying and trying. Let them fail and try again until the skill becomes a talent, becomes institutional memory, becomes something that one day, long after you and I are gone, is known by another little child through the hand of someone we loved and taught patiently. Finally, bear with one another. Bear with one another and forgive. So we've talked about how we should clothe ourselves, but now we're saying bear with. Parents, this is not just being quiet and giving your kids the silent treatment when they've done wrong. Bearing with them isn't like, oh yeah, I'm shutting down and I'm not talking to you. And the kids are like, is everything okay? Yeah. And that passive aggressive weirdness, that's not what this is. Bearing with one another isn't the silent treatment until you're over it. That's not what it is. This is acknowledging Something's wrong. Saying something's wrong. Punish if it needed. Punish if needed. But then tell your child they're forgiven. Tell them, I forgive you. Let them know that they're standing with you as back. Forgive them when they have repented and confessed. Forgive them sincerely, not manipulatively. Restore them completely. And don't leave them out in this weird um Lonely place where they, they don't know where they stand with you. Love them and bear with them, but then forgive them. Don't give that manipulative silent treatment. It's abusive. It's mean. And let's be honest, it's just lazy and easier than the confrontation. 
but it bears a much worse harvest. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Some of us won't deal with sin or discipline our children because they're doing things either we are doing and to confront that feels hypocritical or it could get you in trouble and out you for a behavior you're living into. Maybe you did it in the past and you're so ashamed because you've never dealt with it. I want to say something to you today. This is important. You can't let shame and the lies that come with it cripple you from parenting well. You have to repent of the things you've done and walk away and leave them at the foot of the cross. And don't let the shame of your past define the parenting of your parent present. If you've confessed those things to God, he is faithful and he is just to forgive. You are not parenting with your own righteousness. Remember, we have been given the righteousness of Christ. We don't parent out of our successes and failures. We parent out of the high calling of Jesus Christ to welcome our children and to be people clothed in these things and forgiving them as we have been forgiven. When your children know you're someone who's forgiven and you're not, it's not that you're proud of your sin, but you're not, you're not living under the shame of it and you can confront those things in them and you can do so with integrity and honor. Why? Because you're not parenting in your righteousness. You're not teaching in your righteousness. You're teaching in the righteousness of Christ. Confidently guide your children, not because you've got it all together, but because you have laid your past at the foot of the cross and you are following obediently the calling of God to raise up children in the way they should go so that in the end, they do not depart from it. Don't let the lies of the enemy steal your children's future. Don't let the lies of the enemy about your past steal their future. We have to be bigger than that. And not, not we, we have to believe in a Jesus Christ who is bigger than our past, who has redeemed it. And, and we know all this is true because of what Jesus Christ did. The example of Jesus Christ, the little children and Jesus tell us something. Jesus' example is for all of us, for parents, for teachers, for the way we kindly encounter kids anywhere, the kindness and the humility we should take them. It talks about the value of children. A lot of this message applies to parents, but it actually applies to all of us. Are we valuing children in our time, treasure, and talent? If you're not, I encourage you to do so in some way. Find a way to be a part of that. You may remember that at the beginning of the message how I talked about what went on with children and how they weren't valued in the ancient world. And we can look at our modern day world and see that something's changing. Something's changing in the way we value children. Honestly, people are having less and less children. Uh, Roe versus Wade back, I think, in 1973. How many tens of millions of babies have been aborted? in our nation, and we may think to ourselves, well, it's different, but it's, it's not. Partial birth abortion, how can the church stay silent? These are lives. These are people that Jesus valued. We have to give voice to the voiceless. We have to step up and speak. We have to recognize that just like perversion and abuse of children was once a thing, it is a growing epidemic in our culture. In our culture today, right now, tens of thousands of little children are being dumped at the border and brought into America for very nefarious and evil reasons. The church must respond. We must 
recognize the value of these children. We must recognize the value of children who are put in poverty wages, slave-like conditions, so you and I can have bargain goods on demand. We have to look at the clothes we wear. We have to look at the shoes we buy. We have to look at the companies we support. Why? Because their ethic is oftentimes built on the broken backs of little children. We cannot be people who pretend that 60 million aborted lives don't matter, that tens of millions of lives in the trafficking industry don't matter, that tens of millions of lives in the garment industries for us to have goods and services don't matter. They matter. They matter to God. They always will. And if that offends, fine. Be offended. Because God will not sit silently when people who are created in his image are thrown away like the trash of yesterday. They are purposeful. They are loved. And we are called to be an expression of God's love to them. Church, know what you have to do. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, gentleness, humility, and patience, and go and love the least of these. Welcome them, just as Christ welcomed you. Church, this is a clarion call. Like it or not, this matters for us today. There are real world things we can do, and I will tell you this, it will be desperately inconvenient. God bless you out there, whoever's watching, who've fostered, who've adopted, who've stood up in the gap for the voiceless and been what they needed. Bless you. Church, hear me. Rise up and join them in this movement. We are the church of Jesus Christ, and our mission is as loud and clear today as it was when the Christians first walked into Rome and saw what was happening. It's time to change the culture in the way we live. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, strengthen your church for the way that we must respond and give us courage to respond to you and not to the culture. Lord, people will speak out against us, but Lord, may we not be people who are afraid to own that you value life and you value children and you called them to you. Lord, may we, your church, just embody you. May we love and care for children even as you did. God, give us vision for how to do that. Give us wisdom for how to protect the vulnerable, how to save those in desperate danger, and how to speak with our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been somewhere and they have a suggestion box and you can write a little suggestion, don't serve bad food, drop it in, right? Suggestion box. I wanna tell you something. What we just sang is a picture of Jesus Christ high and lifted up, the King of eternity, our Savior and Lord. And what we're called to is not optional. It's not a suggestion. Jesus doesn't put it in the suggestion box for your life and be like, if you want to, you can do it. No, no. This this beautiful image, worshiping God on his throne, means nothing if we don't love him with our entire body, being self. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I want to tell you, church, if we are going to be the church, we have to be people actively and adamantly involved in the restoration of the value of our children. 
our children, this world's children, we have to respond. I don't know what that looks like. I don't, but I do know this. There's little ways and there's big ways. Whatever the Lord speaks to you, obey it. Obey it at all costs. Because that image we have of Jesus being worshiped in spirit and in truth is something being done by people who were willing to be hated by their cultures, to be seen as outsiders, to be less popular, less influential, and less liked, but they weren't willing to compromise their love for Jesus Christ to fit into the culture. Don't compromise your love for Jesus to fit into this world, which is so fickle, and they will throw you and I away like that. But Jesus won't. And we are called to love at great cost. Go and do so. However God challenges you, my hope and prayer is that in some way God births a vision through this in someone's life to respond to the many needs of children on a macro scale in our world. And maybe he does it through a thousand little decisions in a thousand homes. I don't know. I just know this. The church must respond, and you are that church. As you go, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, grace and peace to you as you go, friends.